BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. This week's episode, Courage or Cringe, featuring Garnet Harriman and William Crowder. Garnet and William are venture capital investors, advisors, founders, and diversity advocates. In today's Courage or Cringe, Trump versus tech, Shikari Richardson's Olympic size headache, and UNC's tenure troubles. Is the former president's class action suit against the titans of the tech industry a fool's errand manufactured to fundraise and promote a 2024 presidential run? Or is it a forcing mechanism to a critical constitutional conversation that the country needs to have about the impact social media is having on our freedom of expression? Was omitting the best American athlete from the track team for the Tokyo Olympics for a marijuana offense a principled stance to maintain integrity in an international competition? Or was it an overly rigid interpretation of archaic athletic performance rules? And finally, was the high-profile rejection of academic tenure by a nationally renowned journalist a moral indictment of a racist trustee board? Or was it the final act of a multi-stage misunderstanding that was overblown by ideologically sympathetic rabble-rousers and the media? This and so much more this week on TDR. Gentlemen, welcome, welcome to the show. Good to have you. So uh, um, I was going to open by asking how, uh, how the venture life is, how the venture world is, um, because I'm always fascinated, especially with things that touch the venture world that are kind of in this kind of diverse world, because there seems to be a lot of that, uh, a lot of that happening. But, uh, you know, a lot of folks may not be aware of that, uh, of that universe. And so how's it going out there? I'll start. I mean, I, I think it, 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 um, it kind of depends on what, what side of the fence you sit, you sit on in the business. Um, you know, if you're an investor, it's, it's kind of crazy right now. Um, you know, there's, there's deals getting done all, all, all the time. The numbers are getting bigger, you know, bigger checks are being written, you know, crazy valuations. You're seeing all kinds of exit activity, both folks going public the traditional way and also via SPACs mm-hmm. and other non-traditional ways. And then you throw in a little bit of crypto and the whole world has gone nuts. Um, if you are a founder, um, great time to be a founder, great time to be raising capital. 
um, especially if you tick all the right boxes for people. And, right. um, and then the other piece of this is kind of where we are. Um, the two of us are in the process of speaking with individuals about raising a fund. And, and that's yeah. a whole mm-hmm. different experience. Um, you know, to be raising capital um, is one of those things that um, I don't think people realize how difficult it is until they actually try it. It's, 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 it's really a challenge. Yeah, I think we can attest to that one firsthand. William, in, in the sense of raising capital as a fund, did you have you seen a clear shift in the level of interest of um, LPs, et cetera, to actually want to invest in more diverse focused funds? Because you know we know a number of folks that are in that space, and while I would say the trend seemed to be takes a really long time to get a fund put together. You know, with everything that happened last year, it definitely seemed to accelerate. So I'm, I'm just curious from your perspective, if you saw a similar type of trend, and is that trend slowing down, speeding up, about the same? How, how do you see it going? Oof. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question because it's got a lot of different answers to it. Um, and Garnett definitely chi- chime in on this as well. <laughs> um, I mean, look, you know, just to be, you know, completely honest about it, because I was involved in fundraising before, um, the mm-hmm. incident, um, the murder uh, in the streets of Minneapolis took place. And it was extremely difficult to be someone who looks like me and looks like Garnett as well, um, especially if you had an idea of investing in diverse founders. It was next to impossible to pull that off and to do so at scale, and certainly to do so at scale and to do so in a timely fashion. You didn't have a you didn't have an audience that really wanted to have that conversation. Yeah. Uh, post, despite all of the PR to the contrary, perhaps out there, right? I well, mean, that, interestingly, that, that's a great point. So interestingly, there was a lot of PR about it from the standpoint of, hey, you know, we think there's a problem. We know there's you know less than two percent goes to black founders, and like everyone knew the statistics. Yeah. They knew those for ten years, but when it actually took, you know, it came to the point of, hey, let's do something about it. That's where you started to see the pullback. That's right. right. And then rubber meets the road. Rubber meets the road yeah. when it's time to actually write the check, right? Sure. Yeah, and so, yeah. and so when 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 Mr. Floyd was murdered, and then you had the fireworks of the summer, which were in many ways the the press releases that everyone was rushing to push out in June and July. It's like, hey, mm-hmm. we're sorry. Hey, we got to do better. Hey, we want to do something. All those types of things, um, you know. <laughs> we we saw we witnessed the talk we heard the talk we did the talk with a lot of these folks, yeah. these people but when it came down to okay so what are you going to do about it and what's the dollar amount that's associated with you being an investor in a fund yeah. that's where everything you saw the pullback again mm-hmm. and you saw the delay and so fast forward to where we are today just to tie that off um, I think that what effectively happened was that everyone pursued the traditional cha- uh, channels last year we're going to give money to mm-hmm. this cause and that cause and these folks and we're going to do this and we're going to we promise we'll add somebody black to our board and like all the traditional things and eventually people realize that hey this isn't not going away people are still in the streets we're still stuck at home and this mm-hmm. time might actually be different different enough yeah that we got to come up with something else to do and people became more open to the idea of hey maybe we should be investors investors in diverse managers and let's consider that. And right. that's a small set still. And I think the thing yeah. that people have to recognize 
is that the folks that have said they're going to do this, and we can name these different corporations, we can just rattle them off to you right now. At the end of the day, the sum total of their commitment to this is minuscule. Because the people that really haven't changed have been the institutional investors, the ones that have all the real money. They're not coming to this party. They, they, they didn't even change the avatars on their Twitter accounts to make them black last year. Like this is, <laughs> this is a whole, this is a big thing that has gotten not as much coverage as it needs to. And there needs to be a lot more discussion about where are they and what are they going to do. Well, this so, is, this will anyway. be, this will be the beginning, hopefully. Right. So, so Jesus, yeah. the way I would parse it, you know, w- William did a great job talking about the chronology of, of our, of our <laughs> experiences as founders, right. What we were joking about uh, at the beginning of this, this, this recording, I would parse it this way. There was a clear acceleration on uh, philanthropy and governance, right? Clear acceleration post-George Floyd. Um, mm-hmm. And there have been a couple of, I don't know, um, um, spikes and then dips, right? Crests and troughs on anything to do with investment. What I'm, what I'm hoping is that that chart is, is still moving up and to the right um, as, uh, let's say, on the, um, on the corporate treasury level within a large public company, they start taking this macro look about what it means to operationalize that, that commitment to black, brown, and female folks around the country who have been excluded historically. Um, we have some glimmers of hope on that front. You know, I, 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 can, I can give you a data point without naming names. Uh, a, a large corporation treasurer that we've talked to recently who's part of a treasurer roundtable or council of, of similarly situated treasurers who are uh, thinking collectively about, hey, what's the best playbook for putting money off our corporate balance sheet to work in the communities? And they are, they're starting to figure out that investing in funds like, like Aperture is perhaps far more capital and time efficient than, than you know, some of the things they've done historically and for sure better than things like philanthropy. Yeah. Hey, Gar- Garnett, so what, with a couple things um, on, on what you and William just said. Number one, the whole idea of my initial comment about despite the PR – what I'm even talking about before the initial effects post-George Floyd, right? I'm talking about years and years of folks giving a tremendous amount of lip service to the fact that this is important, supporting diverse founders. I mean, look, we, I've been, Jesus and I've been in this industry specifically focused on media for, you know, now 15 plus years, and we dedicated our career to these kind of things. So we've been in those rooms and had those conversations. What's amazing to me is if there's evidence at all of the fact that there's such a ways left to go about some of these institutional things, it's the fact that since the summer of last year, so much has happened despite all that stuff that was being talked about like, you know, years and years ago. It's like, hey, nobody, you'd be in a room, nobody would say, nobody would dare say, oh yeah, investing in uh, entrepreneurs of, of, uh, of color is not important. They would all say yes, but it was this very kind of, you know, a paint job on the issue and there was really nothing else. What happened last year is that it forced people to go, oh, now you actually have to do something. And that to me, to use terminology from your world, is a secular trend. That's something that I don't think gets undone. I think that's moving and continues to move. Um, and, I, and I think it's, it's you know, it's a, it, that's a difference maker. Well, this is, this is the segue for, for William to talk about his, about, about his history. <laughs> and I don't know if you want to name the name. I mean, that's, I'll leave it up to you. But, you know, you're, 
Charlie the, the, and Jesus, one of the reasons I wanted you guys to, 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 to talk to us and specifically to talk to William. I mean, part of the reason I'm involved with this is that you're talking to a diversity investing pioneer on this, on this call, right? And, yeah. and his experiences are, you know, depending on what he wants to share with you, right? Or we'll, we'll either cur curl your hair or turn your stomach or, 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 or give credence to that that metaphor you just lodged into the conversation about, you know, hey, the paint can has been there for 20 years, but they just opened it up and started painting with it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. William, hit us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I love the, 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 the paint job analogy because I think it is so it's perfect because it's effectively what it's, it's been for a while. Um, and so I, I came into this business, this business being uh, venture capital, and in particular with a focus on investing in diverse founders back in 2011. And um, mm. as, I, as I have told people in, in, in private moments, you know, I, I, I was the product of right place, right time, right color. Um, mm. When, when we, we, we moved to Philadelphia, um, hadn't been here very long, and um, when we arrived here, everyone was telling me I needed to speak with the folks at Comcast because of things I had done in my background before in the media business. They're like, oh, you'd be perfect to work there. Um, around the same time, Comcast was acquiring NBC, and um, a lot of people don't realize this, but their, their merger was subject to regulatory approval, and that required them yeah. to get the blessings because Democrats were in power at the time. Get the blessings of Bobby Rush, Congressional Black Caucus, Maxine Waters, and a bunch of other folks that said, hey, if you're doing this, um, then there's a lot of other things that we need to see you do as well because your diversity track record is terrible. Yours alone at Comcast, yours at NBC, and the two of you together is not something we want to see from a diversity standpoint. So how do we change that? Um, a lot of things came out of that, um, but one of those was this idea of creating a venture fund that would specifically invest in black and brown founders. And the thing that's interesting about that moment in time is that in many ways, that playbook that they executed back then is a playbook that nearly every corporation executed last summer, which was mm -hmm. put the release out, make a, a yep. long list of commitments, and we'll see you in a year and see what happened, right? Now, in Comcast's case, they made a commitment that was going to be like a four, they were going to have like a four uh, 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 an advisory council with like uh, four years worth of oversight, and the goal was to keep them um, honest about all the things that they promised to do. Um, for me, it created an opportunity for me to be a VC. Didn't see it coming, hadn't planned for it. It popped up on the radar, and we agreed to do it together. And I showed up ready to go to work. And I believe mm -hmm. that there was an opportunity to invest in people that look like the folks on this call. Um, and I knew that people hadn't done it, that we've been underestimated, like we always have been in every other space. What I found... And, mm -hmm. Go ahead. I was going to say, just to, just to kind of push a little bit on that, I'm, you know, and I'm stoked and happy that that opportunity came by for you. And Jesus and I think have had similar moments in our career. But devil's advocate... Does the idea of a kind of specific vehicle around these things, like this is the black thing, this is the brown mm -hmm. thing, whatever it may be, does that then offer somebody the ammo to say, oh, like we got this, somebody else is dealing with this and now I don't have to think about it. Like, is there a dark side to this? So there's, there, 
it's a, it's a multifaceted issue. And so let me let me let me give it to you through my own lens back then and then my lens today. Back then, I was one of probably we could probably count the number of black VCs in the country using two hands mm. and not using all of our fingers in terms of who had the ability to influence <laughs> the fingers left power. over. <laughs> what fingers <laughs> left over, fingers. right? Yeah. And so, you know, we, we, there weren't that many of us that had the ability to influence the outcome once the entrepreneur came in yeah. for the pitch, right? So we're talking 20, 2012, 2013, 2014. That's what the landscape looked like. And so when you say, hey, we want to invest in diverse founders, we want to invest in black founders, the first reaction I always got from everybody, was yeah you're not going to find much Where because are they? we haven't right, seen right, right. any sure. and so well, where did you look well we didn't look we just said we didn't <laughs> find any okay yeah so what happens when you look and so that was the first piece now at that point in time no one felt responsibility to look for anything and so from a corporate perspective comcast comes to this and it says well hey we're going to do this well why are you doing it well, because we're trying to become the world's largest media company. That's why we're doing it. You know? And so everyone else, all of us, we know that's what's happening. We know that. We've seen this a million times before. The question is, are you going to take the opportunity to do something different or not? And that wasn't just on me to be able to do that. That was a question of whether or not the organization was in a place where it would say, okay, we're in this place. Whether we wanted to be here or not, we're here. We've made this commitment. Now, are we going to make the most out of this commitment or not? And more right, often right, than right. not, the corporation chooses to not do it, right? Like, we're going to say we're going to do it. You know, we'll paint the house, but we don't really want to own this house. We definitely don't plan on moving into this house. So we'll make it look good from the outside, but we have never been on the inside. We have no clue what it looks like on the inside. And so that's where you end up. And that's where we've historically been. And that's been true not just with Comcast, but it's been true with nearly every other effort that's happened over the last 10 years. That's how we Mm -hmm. end up where we are today, coming out of 2020. And all of a sudden, you have all these different people that are running their own funds or want to raise their own funds and they're getting capital from these different corporations that made all these commitments if everything had been done the way it should have been done in 2011, 12, and 13, then 2020 is not a thing the way it was a thing. You know, we're right. now working on the next iteration of this. Instead, we're repeating what was going on 10 years ago. We're just using bigger numbers. So $100 million is a new 20. It was a $20 million fund at Comcast before. Now, if you go back and you look at these different corporate commitments, you'll find a number $100 million more often than any other number that's uttered. XYZ Corporation puts $100 million towards investing in diverse managers. Hey, we're launching a new fund that's focused on black and brown founders. It's $100 million. Surprise, surprise. Like, that's what it was, you know, 10 years later. What's, what's really interesting is, is the dynamics that shifted, right, in those last 10 years. Because what you described, I completely agree. Like, the issues have all, always been there. The difference, though, is the level of, of bright light that you can now shine on those organizations very publicly Yes. That is driven through social. Like, this is an account that we talk about quite a bit that st- started last year. I forget, it was like, I think, an, an agency that puts together that literally took the logos of organizations on Instagram and then gave them like a white shade of it. And you can literally, it's based on how many diverse 
uh, executives were were in that in that company. There were some logos that you could the degree of whiteness. You couldn't even see them. Like they were, they were all on, on white backgrounds. Like you couldn't yeah. even see it. it right, was proportional to the degree. But that, but it was, that yeah. kind of ability to then turn on the heat yeah. and say, "Hey, that's great that you guys are publicly putting out these statements. That's awesome." But then when you look just slightly under the hood, it's very quickly to see that you're not do, you're not living up by these values right. that you're claiming to actually you know do it. I think that's the difference, right? Because you're right. All this you know was the same way 10, 20 years ago. But I think now is this is why you know when we think about this idea that consumers have really are shift are the ones that are driving this change, and consumers and employees, frankly, is that they're pushing yeah, the organizations right. to say, hey, now we have to live up to these things that we want to talk about publicly. Because it's much harder to hide that now than what yeah. it has been, and I think that's that's part of the issue. I think part of the difference, I think, that, I, that we're seeing. Charlie, there's something there's something really insidious behind the way that you asked the question, and I don't mean that you're insidious, but you know the and and it it points to something that's really special about what we're trying to do with Aperture, right? So if you if you let people hive off small capital vehicles. And, 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 and it's okay for, for, for that small vehicle to be black and brown and only invest in black and brown folks and female folks. You're, there's something very cynical and co-opting about that. And I, I don't know if that's where you were headed, but that's, that's where William and I ha- have been headed. Because we're headed in sort of the, in, in an opposite direction with the scale of what we're trying to do. And mm-hmm. really what it boils down to, what's insidious about, you know, what, what was behind your question is... Um, there's no normalization uh, about you know folks looking like us actually writing the check. That's yeah. that's where we're headed, right? And so there's yeah. a there's mm-hmm. a handful of large you know hundred hundred plus million che- you know folks out there mi- you know million dollar funds run by black and brown folks out there, but it's still a minuscule number to William's point earlier, right? And 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 we haven't gotten anywhere near that point where society in general looks at it as quote normal or normalized that folks who look like everyone on this call is writing the check, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's, yeah. that's yeah. where we're trying to get to. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the weird things about our fund, right? Because we, we have the ability to invest in, well, white folks. And that's one of the genius strokes, you know, about, about William's fund thesis. Well, in my opinion. Yeah, well, well, you know, it, it's it's great that you mentioned that. Um, and just as a, you know, kind of my sort of maybe maybe the parting thought on this for me anyway, but philosophically, so you guys understand sort of where I'm coming from, especially as it impacts your world, of which I'm not an expert, okay? But the way I see this is it's all a question of phases, right? These sort of moments that we've been going through historically. The first one, you know, in the case of your world, the kind of financial world, Jesus has heard me say this many times, is the idea of like, okay, we have to get our own house in order. And this, a lot of this happened post-George Floyd. Some of it was happening before, but certainly not with the level of urgency that it, that it is now. So we need to make sure that the people inside our fund or whatever look more like the rest of the world, right? That's like, great. Step one, like make sure your money managers and the people who are placing the bets kind of look reflective of the world. That That's kind of like one thing. The next thing was, you know, what began, has begun to happen more, which is let's find these entrepreneurs that look, that are black and brown. That requires changing your watering hole. That requires looking at different places you haven't done historically, different schools, blah, blah, blah. But it means investing in people who don't look, who look like, you know, other folks out there, but don't necessarily look like me and supporting their ideas. To me, the next phase is, 
supporting um, you know people who have ideas that impact those communities in an outsized way, that add value in an outsized way to those communities, irrespective of who they are. So, and maybe there's four, five, six, seven, eight steps after that to get you eventually to the place where. We're looking out at the world with this kind of sensibility and this perspective, and it's a good thing for everyone involved, right? But, like, I see it as phases, and I just equate it with the experience we've had in media, which has been the same. It's like, hey, we've got to, like, hire some Latinos, and then maybe we've got to put somebody in charge of all the Latino stuff, but then nobody thinks about it besides that guy. And then ultimately, like, oh, let's just invest in this because it's good for business, right? So, anyway, that's just high-level perspective. So let me, let me push back on that a little bit, Charlie. And yeah. I think everything you said is, is 100% right. But then in the context, except for the part where, where I was wrong, right? But but in the context of where we are today, my, the issue I take with that is at this point, mm-hmm. I'm done with it. I'm done with yeah. the sequential approach or the sequential expectation because what's effectively happened is that the people that we've been waiting for, literally waiting for for decades, they're slow. And they will slow play it as much as they can. What happened last year is it forced a lot of those sequential steps to start to operate in parallel. And those things have to go parallel, right? Because because what it does is it challenges it challenges any individual. The moment you say I need you to walk and chew gum at the same time, everyone's like, "Oh my god, hold on." It's like, well, no, I need you to walk, chew gum, I need you to breathe, I need you to do a few other things as well. Like, there's a lot that needs to be done. And I think the issue here is that, you know, the opportunity for the the sequentialness of the of the progress was literally 10 years ago, right? Like, that mm-hmm. was the opportunity. And what we found was that no one wanted to do it. Right. No one wanted to jump on the bandwagon. No one wanted to believe that there was opportunity. No one wanted to step outside the boat, get a little wet, see that they could actually swim. Like no one wanted to do that. And interestingly, what happened after that moment was that we had Me Too. And when Me Too hit, the heat map went that direction. Diversity became synonymous with Me Too and the response to that, because that was something everyone could relate to. I tell people all the time, like if you decide you don't want to be around black people, there are places in this country you can go and you'll never see one. I've been there. Mm-hmm. I've been that first black person the kid ever saw. I don't know if I mm-hmm. scarred him for life or not, but he definitely <laughs> was surprised. And, uh, but you can't get away from women. So this notion of having right. to confront that issue and having to deal yeah, that's with a good it, too. you can't yep. run from it. So we had to deal yeah. with that. And we still haven't fully dealt with it. But it, it allowed everyone to say, that's going to be my exit ramp. I'm going to focus on that, Right. And then something else happened that brought you all the way back to where we were before. And if we had dealt with it back then in parallel, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be at this place now trying to deal with it again. And I think what you're finding now, which is very different in the landscape today than it was when I first started doing this stuff 10 years ago, is that the entrepreneurs that look like the folks on this call have raised their game. There are more of them. They are better at it. They've studied they recognize the opportunities and they're ready to go for it. And that's a different generation of founder than what we had on the landscape before. And so I remember I did this talk years ago and it was about being undeniable. And so at any given point in time, someone's going to tell you, no, you didn't get a job. You can blame it on a lot of other things, but at the end of the day, you were undeniable for whatever the reasons might be. And I think that what we're seeing now is that people are challenging that notion of, of, of deniability 
and saying, I'm bringing the team to the party. I'm bringing the skill set to the party. I've got a massive problem. And you're the one with the issue because I've done everything I was supposed to do to convince you that this was worthy of investment. And now I got a few more options that even if you still tell me no, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to get the capital from them and I'm going to go and blow this thing out the water. Yeah, and so it's time to see that. But I think that so when, so when people ask me, well, what do you think I should do? Like, should we do this or should we do that? And corporations ask us that all the time. And I say, no, the answer is do it all. You literally do it all. You pick the different three or four things you just you just came up with, do all of them because the sum total of your action is what's been missing all along. And we need that opportunity to see people try things and fail while others try them and succeed as opposed to just continuing to wait for step A, then step B, then step C. So part of that Amen, is just my brother. own Preach perspective it. of experience. Yeah. And it's just, and then it's my own frustration, which you can kind of hear. It's like, look, man, I'm like, I'm not getting any younger. And you can see Garnett, he's not getting any younger. <laughs> so we we got it. We got what was that about Garnett? That's right? why we keep the light by the way, that's why we keep the lights low in the studio so you that's guys can't see funny. us that well. You know, William, the only thing I would add to what you said, I think the, the other calculus here is that when you think about I agree with about raising the game by many of these diverse entrepreneurs, but it's also that those investments should no longer be considered charity investments. It's like these are actually great opportunities because in many cases, these diverse uh, entrepreneurs are looking at specifically creating, to Charlie's point, outsized impact in diverse communities that are the growth communities. There are the ones that are driving the change, driving the, the, the trends on media consumption, on growth and just demographics, et cetera. So, also not thinking about those like, oh, we almost have to sort of think about these differently or just do it because we want to feel good. So here's a little bit of, here's, let me break off a little piece for you and go away. Like, no, these are actually many cases, the opportunities that are going to be what those sectors will continue to evolve into as they go forward because it's those diverse communities that are driving those, those ask sectors. Me, hey, Jesus, ask me, ask me what the tagline is for Aperture VC. Let, let's hear it. What's, what's the tagline, Cardin? VC for the multicultural mainstream. That is oh, exactly what there you're talking we go. about. Oh, I like it. That is what, that. that is exactly what you're talking about. It's one of the things that makes yeah. Aperture really different. And, you know, um, it also loops into that point Charlie made earlier about normalizing. This, this is, look, this is, this is not a gimme, right? This is not like a, yeah. a benefit that people are, like, giving us and we should be grateful for. This is, this is corporations and, and, and white investors and, and investment pools basically facing an existential crisis and needing to speak to the folks who are going to define the way things work in the future. I mean, we're almost the majority now. We're, we're, we're at 30, 32% of the country. Sure. 50, and, and the younger you go, the more it gets that way, right? 51% yeah, right. of people under yeah. 18 are not white. So that's where it's at. No, absolutely. Yeah. Look, preach it. And then, uh, you know, last note on, on the sequential nature of it. I'm definitely describing, not prescribing, right? So sure. my, my point is not that, it, that that should be the plan, but just, just that it has been. And I think if you can short circuit and jump ahead 18 steps or do them all sequential at the same time, hallelujah. Yeah. So um, yeah. I love the undeniable you. So we've got some undeniably cool courage and cringe topics that we're going to get to. Oh, yeah, we got we got to get into these. These are gonna and, be fun. And uh, we, we're going to need eighteen more hours to discuss them. <laughs> but um, but now, I, I know you, right. I know you guys know the show. But nevertheless, we're going to have Jesus explain the game Qu and then rules of the, uh, game. rules of the game, and then we'll uh, we'll get started. But this one is uh, this one's going to be good. This will be fun with you guys. Like yeah. just more conversations. So a lot of opinions here, which I love that. But just real quick review of, of the rules is that, hey, so we're going to have three topics, courage or cringe. 
will uh, tee up each topic, give some context. And the idea here is that, you know, to go through it, and I would say, if possible, start with what is the call you're making on the topic, whether it's courageous or cringeworthy, uh, and then get into the why, right? And as we talk about this, of course, we'll kind of go in, in, in order, but you both being our guest, we're going to default to you every time to start with the sequencing, um, whether you call it courageous or, or cringeworthy. So coin toss, we're going to start with Garnett on the first one, and then we'll switch back and forth, right? We'll have one of them. Okay, lead, cool. But we'll start Let's with that. Will Garnett. So tee it up for us, Asus. First, uh, courage or cringe, Trump sues big tech. Uh, this is a big one. So I was reported by Axios on July 7th. R- reported by everybody. And everyone, <laughs> yeah. right? On July 7th, former President Trump announced that he is the lead class representative in a lawsuit being filed in the Southern District of Florida against the three largest social media platforms and their CEOs, right? So we're talking about Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg, Twitter, Jack Dorsey, and then Google, obviously owner of YouTube with Sundar Pichai. Which, by the way, did you, did you hear that? Did you see the actual announcement? Yeah. I, I love the way he says. I did. Punch, punch on or something I, I like know. that. Yeah, he, Man, he just drives He's never nuts. been one for pronunciation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah that, I just, so. uh, he you get nuts. what you get. You get what you get. Anyways, uh, Trump <laughs> is seeking immediate injunctive, injunctive relief uh, to allow the prompt restoration of his social media accounts and is also asking the courts to impose punitive damages on the three social media giants. Now, his efforts are actually being backed by the American First Policy Institute, or, or, or AFPI, which is a nonprofit that has been focused primarily on supporting Trump's policies, right, through a new legal entity called the Constitutional Litigation Partnerships. Now, as you guys, I'm sure, recall, they're like all tobacco, tobacco attorneys, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, from what, from what was in that press conference. <laughs> no, they are. They are, are they really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are. Oh, they're tobacco hilarious. attorneys. Now, this is all, of course, in response, right, to the banning of the President Trump from all the social major, uh, major social media platforms due to his role in promoting violence during the Capitol Hill assault on January 6th. Now, just a reminder, Twitter banned them altogether, right? Facebook, uh, even though they went to uh, Mount Zion, right, and they came back saying, hey, you have to make a decision within the, last, within the next two years. So he's suspended for at least the next two years, and we'll see after that. Uh, probably the oddest one, and I think we talked about this in an episode a while ago, was YouTube, right? Because they basically said, hey, you're suspended until we consider that the threat, the threat of violence yeah. is actually no longer there, which is a really random one. But, but anyway, so suspended against all, all three of those, right? Now, that impact on Trump being banned has definitely had an effect, right? So there was some data that was reported by News Whip uh, where they looked at the social media interactions about the president and how they have fallen almost 91% since January. So up from about almost 2 million, uh, I'm sorry, from like 50 million down to under 2 million. So massive impact and you could totally see it, right? Uh, but when you think of all of this, right, at the end of the day, courage or cringe, Trump suing tech to defend freedom of speech or classic political move to fire up the base, but with no real legal basis to overturn decisions made by private companies for violating user policies. Garnett. This one is easy. This, this is, uh, it, it, it's not even, no, they're, it, it's they're none, none of them are easy. Let's, let's hear it. it it's, it's cringe. It's cringe. It's cringeworthy. Uh, and I, I get a list of, I get a list of bullet points. One, you know. <laughs> let's do it. All right. As a former, like, pre-law student at Columbia, there's no such thing as freedom of speech for anything other than, you know, um, uh, things related to the government. Um, And so private entities and private communities and all that kind of stuff, you know, so that that, clearly he would have flunked out of, like, you know, first year law school if, if if he tried to bring this up in, like, a mock debate or something. So that, that's the first thing that I, I'm objecting to and I, I consider cringeworthy. And the second thing is it's, it's basically a function of his loss in uh, fundraising revenue, as far as I can see. 
he's 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 had the kind of downward spiral on fundraising and support that uh, Jesus sketched out, and I you know I, I don't recall the exact details, but you know that's that that makes that that stands to reason, because the main reason he ended up where he ended up in in the Oval Office has to do with amplifying the voices of a relatively small group of people, in ways that. Uh, had the optics of like disproportional impact. Um, three, this is this is it's cringeworthy because it's it's emblematic of what's wrong with the with the 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 tort you know uh, legal system in this country to begin with. Is that this is this is a frivolous this is a frivolous frivolous lawsuit thrown by a guy who basically has a history of doing twenty or thirty of these over the last couple of decades, and who never follows through. I don't believe he's won any of them, oh, you know. And, and I'm a lifelong New Yorker, so I've, I've I've seen a lot of his nonsense in New York and New Jersey. So you know, for for several reasons, I think this is cringeworthy. Yeah. In a, in a lot of cases, these um, the the at least historically, the lawsuits that he's filed have almost been, in a way, means to a negotiating end. That's it. It's almost been like right. it's been part of it a broader is. negotiation. That's exactly. In a way. It. It's like yep. you know, we get to a point where we don't like each other, then I sue you, and then we come back to the table, and then we figure it out, and I get maybe that last little widget that I was looking for. So it's 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 re- historically, in my experience, it's been rarely about law. That's, that's exactly. But, you know, one point. One point that Garnett you bring up that I, I think you're dead on is the fact that it is a fundraising effort because this is an actual class action lawsuit, right? So they're they're actually asking people to join the lawsuit, but yet when you click to word to join, the first thing you get you get prompted to is, hey, donate here. Yep. It took me forever so to find it's, the it's like the too. funniest thing, right? Like yep. it's like it's a big, big drive. Yep. Well, and also think about to Garnett's point, right? If you've lost ninety-one percent of your amplification or your or whatever, then clearly there's going to be a direct net impact on your ability to do anything, even as yeah. businesses, fundraising, whatever. It well, may I want to get into that, but I want to hear Williams' take first, yeah, because I do want to talk about because I think when you separate the actual lawsuit for what he's complaining about, which is this inability to be able to use these social platforms, right? And how much loss he's had in his voice because of this. I, I, I'd love to talk about it, but but William, why don't you go, tell us what, what your thoughts are here in, in terms of the courage or cringe of him actually suing Big Tech. Yeah, you know, it, it, everything about him is cringeworthy, personally. <laughs> so that's where I come out with almost everything this guy does. But at the same time, like this is one of those things where and we'll get into it, right? If you get beyond just the the surface of this, if it wasn't him, this would be a completely different conversation. This is a this is not it's not as cut and dry as it might seem if it's not him involved. What Garnett said is one hundred percent right. This yeah. is this is the money grab. Like this is this reeks of desperation. I'm already trying to raise money to pay for my lawsuits. That didn't work. Mm-hmm. Now I'm getting sued in a whole bunch of other places. Let me find some other way to make money. I'm speaking at weddings and bar mitzvahs whenever I get a chance. That's not bringing enough money. Yeah, so my, where my else CFO can I go? just got indicted for my nonprofit in New York. Right, right, <laughs> right. right. Like, all this, like, yeah. I don't have my university <laughs> scam anymore. Like, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Opposing, let me go find some other place to get the money. Mm-hmm. Now, so, 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 I, I, if you, if you put a gun to my head, then I would say it's cringeworthy, and I'll walk away. Right. Now, the other piece of this, which I think can't be lost, is he is desperate. And if he becomes president again, then he keeps himself out of jail. (laughs) So at a minimum, it's like, I literally don't have anything to lose. And so why don't I pick a fight with the biggest bully I can find 
And the one that I think will galvanize the most people to join me in that fight, either by pressing the button and giving me money or giving me their support to take right. down big tech. Because quite frankly, big tech screwed this whole thing up because they're part of the reason why we got them to begin with. So they're trying to put mm-hmm. the genie back in the bottle. They've been trying to do this for years, and they just basically put themselves in a really difficult position. And now it all comes down to relying upon the legal system to save you. And it's a legal system that he helped create because they put so many of their judges into the system anyway, all the way up to the Supreme Court, that he's willing to risk it because he's like, you know what? Who knows what could happen? I was president. So anything literally could happen right. if my name is involved with it. And when you've got that kind of risk associated with it, you're never 100% sure that it's going to be an easy deal. You, you don't know that you're automatically going to win at every step of the way. And you know this guy, he doesn't even have to win to say that he won. But you give him one victory out of all of them. And from his perspective, he, he went undefeated and his followers have kind of done the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Because, look, the reality as a soundbite for the base to go after big tech, even if the, if the lawsuit does absolutely nothing, I think that definitely helps. To your point, even if there isn't actually funding, and I think it will actually generate funding. I think people will donate. Yeah. But even if they don't, if it's not massive success on that. that thing and there won't be an answer. That, right. Like, so the thing, there won't be right. an answer to this case before he runs again. So when he runs again, he'll just be saying, if you hate big tech, I'm your guy. I'm fighting against big tech. Who else is out here suing big tech? Not my opponent. My opponent's protecting big tech. That's where you end up. And just to be clear, though, because you've talked about a couple of different uh, tributaries here, William. So where are you netting out on this? On a binary level, you got to because you you've offered up some pretty interesting nuance within he's cringe. the. You, you already said yeah, cringe. He's cringe. You're cringe. Yeah, yeah. It's cringe. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's cringe okay, because it. it's it's him, and we know why he's doing it. At the very base right. level, he could care less about the outcome. It's about right. the opportunity of staying relevant, and so for that, we can't count gotcha. on him yeah, to actually sense. take the fight to the finish, even if it was gotcha. the right fight to take. I think yeah. it's super interesting, too, the idea that you just mentioned, because it makes me think that the idea about the um, the kind of biggest bully and the biggest platform, because it is in a way. I think big tech is the immigration issue that was in 2015. It's the wall. It's the wall. Yeah, well, it's the wall. Yeah. But I, the, where I would quibble with Jesus is I don't think this is just for the base. I don't. I think that there is uniform concern mm-hmm. about across political aisles. I mean, in fact, I, I joked about it earlier, but it seems to be the one thing we can agree on is a hatred for these companies across the aisle. People, you know, <laughs> some people think they're not moderating enough. Some people think they're moderating too much and nobody likes them. And so I actually think that it's, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of, um, but my, my only counter to you on that, Charlie, is like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So I agree with you that I think everyone hates big tech to some degree. Right. But a lot of people really hate Trump. No, no, so I, even, no, even I get in that. the case I, there, I, I, if, unless you're yeah. part of that base, if yeah. you're anywhere outside of that base, you may just dislike Trump more than you than you dislike big tech. So even right. if you appreciate the fact that he's going to big tech, I don't know if it gets other people that are not already part of that base. I'm just saying in terms of more resonance more broadly, if it yeah, was yeah, a gun yeah. issue, if it was a, a pro-life issue, if it was something like that, it doesn't have the same resonance cross aisle that yeah, just yeah, the yeah. initial That's conversation yeah. can have. So I would just say that. All right, go, Charlie. All right. So, uh, of course, I'm going to spoil the party, but you guys uh, anticip- anticipated that. Kinda so look, it. I think that um, in, st- in, in doing the research for this, so the one thing that I was struck with is... Um, 
the dearth of links and information about the suits themselves. I couldn't find it in a single article. I had to go to, and there was like a thousand articles about this. I had to go to some obscure um, legal journal to find the links to the actual suits themselves that are, you know, behind this thing. And I think this in the context also, which I don't know if you guys saw this like 48 hours ago, uh, 37 states announced that they're suing Google for antitrust uh, issues. So I have not seen that. No. Yeah, there's so basically 75 percent of America's state attorney generals, right, are alleging that Google is buying off competitors and have restricted contracts and maintain a, a monopoly and all this. How other many of those are Republican? 75 percent of the states. I don't know. I, oh, mean, I guess the, the states. No, no, no. Yeah, this is 37 of 50 states. Oh, These yeah, are, yeah. So this is oh, definitely that's, that's cuts across. There's blue in there, Jesus. <laughs> there, yeah. Okay, <laughs> that that but, ruined that argument. But, but anyway, <laughs> but by the way, the the annual economy of all 37 states still doesn't equal Google's annual revenues. Uh, amen. Wow, there you go. Yeah, good point. I do want to just so so just one one quick note though on what William said earlier, even before I get to kind of my 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 uh, my decision here, is just the just the fact, William, that you said. But hang on, we got to separate you know Trump from this and take a look at some of this other stuff. That in itself is the kind of that's a dangerous thought in a lot of. Uh, you know, uh, in the world that we're living in right now, even doing that sort of let's look past this and see what else is there. Yep. So I do, I think it, I think it requires that kind of perspective to even look at this issue because it's really hard to erase him from it. It really, really it is. is. And so anyway, I did my research to try to do just that. So here's what I, here's where I net out on this, right? First of all, I think on a net basis, and this is all these decisions, that's why they're binary and they're hard to do. But for me, I'm a courage, okay? And here's why. I think that it's really... I don't want to be pejorative, but it's just really difficult, bordering on infantile, to suggest that Google, Facebook, and these companies are just like private players. I mean, I looked at the companies that have the market capitalization that they do, right? There's six companies that are a trillion dollars or higher. There's only two that are two trillion. Five of the six are American. Four of them are the ones that we're talking about here, right? Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. These companies are the biggest companies with the most sway and influence of any company in the history of humankind. Like, that's just the reality of the situation. I think that the idea of this lawsuit which may be for all the reasons that he's historically done it because of this, you know, it's a negotiation tactic. It's to raise funds, of course, like all these other things. Uh, I, I concede those. But at the end of the day, I think if it forces the understanding or the thought or just the idea that maybe there's a new category of company that we need to think about, right? It's not a utility. Maybe it's a communications utility. Maybe it's some other kind of classification that needs to be governed and run and considered in a different way. I think that that actually would be a good outcome, right? So if it's all about this, uh, you know, a pol this uh, number 230 policy of the Decency Act, and we can we either remove that so that they can get sued and then there's more competition, or maybe we keep it, but we classify them in a different way so that it's not just like, hey, we're a private company. Yeah, they're a private company that's run by four people that, like, depending on what they decide, can have a massive influence on who gets, you know, who gets seen and gets to communicate in the world. If Google decides that they don't like, you know, our company, like, you know, we're sunk. We can't send emails, can't get websites, can't do all that stuff. So... So I net out on courage because it potentially could force that kind of conversation. And we're talking about just a, a, a you know, a, a level of company or just entity that we just have not grappled with or contended with in the construct of what these laws were meant to address. And I don't mean it just for our country. I mean it globally. So that's where I'm at because I think that conversation needs to be had. And I think if this helps bring it about in some way, maybe not related to this lawsuit, maybe something that comes as a result of it, I think ultimately that's a good thing. So, I mean, that's, I, I think, yeah. that's, a, that's part of it. That, 
That's a really interesting way of looking at it. I got to tell you, um, but the, the, there's going to be a big leap that needs to get made from a legal and a definitional standpoint, and that, that's around well, this yeah. notion of ownership, right? So if, if, if it's not owned by the government, it's going to be hard to, or partially owned by the government, like it might be in certain parts of Europe, right, let's say, actually, <laughs> or, or Asia, come to think of it. <laughs> Um, if it's not owned or partially owned by the government, it, it's going to be hard to it'll be hard to make that sort of free speech case. Yeah, and I think that's you know hearing you describe it, Charlie. I think you bring up a lot of points that are all really interesting, relevant. No, not relevant. I'm sorry, all really interesting, but none relevant to this actual lawsuit, right? In the context that you you might as well sue for something completely related in a, in a different country because it has nothing to do with actually like right now he's suing them in, in Florida which has no jurisdiction for none of these companies, right? Because these companies are actually, if you want to sue them, you have to sue them in San Francisco. I think it's for Twitter. I think for Google, it's in like Palo Alto. Like the jurisdiction for even the place to even bring a suit, to even start to maybe have any kind of influence is somewhere completely related to where you're doing. So you're doing all this for show. And that's the part where, and, and you're bringing up things about monopolies that you're bringing up, right? Because I agree, yeah. like, oh, maybe we should look at that. I agree with you. These are really powerful companies. But then the way, the mechanism to break that up is to look at, at the laws that are governing whether or not these are just getting too big, to your point, right? Now it's being so concentrated. That's great. That's, a, that's another different conversation. But this is why when I see these kind of suits, and, I, and I, now I'm looking at Florida and Republicans, I think those go so hand in hand, of bringing up suits that are all to rile the base to help them get elected. That have nothing to do with actually creating change, and that's the part where I'm, I'm not. I almost don't disagree with almost anything you said because I think you make really good points about the issues that we're now in with these big, big companies. I just see the suit of like, well, you might as well just like sue them and, and TJ. I want to bring. It I has wanna, nothing I, to do with actually yeah. creating any actual change against these things, but it's, it may look good to you for, like because you're suing them. I want to bring. Saying, like I want to bring Garnett into this because you may have more legal experience than the three other of us put together. So I'll 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 just I'll ask this question. I actually. I, I looked up, Jesus, oh. what you said about jurisdiction, <laughs> okay? And actually, district courts have original jurisdiction of civil actions that arise under constitutional issues, constitutional claims, which is the one that's But these are not, con- it's not constitutional claims. This is based on, a, on, a, on an actual... It's not. Yes, right. It can be constitutional. I'm, I'm, not, it I'm is, not arguing the, the point. I'm arguing that just the rationale. Speech. It's not about free speech. That's right. It's about a, content, a, a user agreement. Right, is a violation of a user agreement that, of which it has a private own... contractual matter. That's that's thank, thank you. See, we got, we got someone with long spirit. Love it. Thank you, Garnett, for making my point. Well, look, I knew I knew it was going to be three three on one at least for this one. Okay, but but no, I'm no, not, no. Again, but look, here, here's what here, here's what's intellectually compelling to me about what you yeah, said, yeah. and and actually, um, Jesus pushed it in this direction too, in his follow up. If you really, really want to go after them for the, for the uh, you know, I think your thing was scale and impact and de facto monopolistic practices, you don't do that this way necessarily. You, know, you don't do it to the DOJ for a global company. For a global company, what you do is you go to The Hague. You go to the WTC, the World Trade Council, or whatever it's called, right? That's where oh, yeah. you go. And, mm. you, and you see and, and roll the dice on no, that. Except the, the other... <laughs> The other offshoot of all of this is if it actually makes its way through the legal system, you got to deal with discovery. And once you get into that, you don't know what you're going to find with these guys when you do discovery. And so it's a bit of a fishing expedition. Who knows where this thing goes? But how are you going to email it? (laughs) 
but I guess yeah, that could be that could be the wall. I guess a wall factor in this. Okay, how, how are you going to email it? Because they're going to shut you down. <laughs> <laughs> it could be really, really messy it. because I know for a fact uh, within at least one of those companies, like I'm very much aware of the internal dialogue they were having about what they should and shouldn't do and when they should do it and how strong they should push it and who had things to yeah. say about it, et cetera. And once that stuff becomes public, it starts to shape people's perspective about it. And again, it just makes it, it's just a wild card. And so the longer you allow him, he's like, he's like the boxer that just finds a way to, to, to get up at the end of each round. It's like, as long as he's, as long as he meets the bell, he's got a shot. You just don't know what right, can happen. Right. You need to knock people out as quickly as you possibly can because the last thing you want to do is to see them in the 10th round because anything can happen. You trip, you fall, you break your nose, and you're lost, right? Like, you just want to get it out. And his approach is always, I'm just going to hang around. I'm just going to say some stuff. Whatever I got to do to just stay around, and who knows, at some point, somebody's going to do something, and it's going right. to work out in my favor. And that's the risk, you know? That's the risk. You let him hang around long enough, you might end up having him as president. I cannot, I cannot <laughs> resist since he went to went to the boxing metaphor. You, you know the old Mike Tyson quote, right? Everybody's got a plan. Everybody's got a plan. That's true. Until you get punched in the oh, face. That one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, and this idea of getting punched in the face, last thought, at least for me, um, well, actually two thoughts. One is that, again, taking Trump out of it, there's more than a million class members in the suit as well, right? Um, and I, you know, I've shown this to, uh, to Jesus in the past, you know, examples of when, you know, like, for instance, my wife, just as an example, recently bought a Bible for our granddaughter on Amazon. And a little Bible, and she put a review. She's like, oh, this was awesome. Love the book. Love the cover. It's great that we have this option for this holy book. And she put the word, her comment got taken out because it violated the terms of service for Amazon. Yeah, no, I saw that. Okay, so <laughs> terrible. When, when that kind of stuff happens, yeah. and it happens all the Wait, time. I'm, I'm lost. I'm lost. Why, so, what, what, oh, yeah. You should be. You what, should be what, lost. What did it violate? You should be lost. What did it violate? It, it violated the community standards. So I showed the whole right. thing to Jesus because we, yeah. we studied it. We're like going through it. And of course we filed like, hey, by the way, what is this it, about? It wasn't a Bible that she bought. It was bookmarks. It was bookmarks that she used it to bookmark the Bible. Uh, okay. So the product was like these little... Like, oh, like, bookmarks. You're right. Yeah, bookmarks. It's not even a Bible. Yeah, it wasn't even the Bible. Right? So, <laughs> so right. there was like these bookmarks that she used and she put them on the Bible and then she put this post about right. how great these oh, bookmarks and, and are. Because the she Bible said, mind. oh. Yeah. So oh. that got flagged. It yeah. was... It's, it's so... Yeah. No, you're wow. right. I mean, that so, stuff, it doesn't help the cause is the reality, right? Yeah. Um, so I do think that there's real things that are happening out there. People are going like, what the hell? And then, right, right. And then just last thought is the last time, the, the, the most significant insight I ever got about Trump was early when he was elected. It was an NPR reporter. Jesus has heard me say this before. An NPR reporter was trying to give her perspective because she'd followed him on the campaign trail. And all the media was like, this guy's a joke. This guy's a clown. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. He doesn't know the first thing about X, Y, Z. And then next time, next thing he won. And her feedback was, you know what? His supporters took him seriously, not literally, and his detractors took him literally, not seriously. I see a lot of that in the headlines right now of people taking him literally and not seriously. And I'm just going to throw the, 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 the flag or the flag on that, that I've never seen it like this. Like, it's like, oh, it's a joke. It's this, it's that. And look, I'm just saying. That's why it's not a joke, though. I think, I think to William's point, I think we're all saying the same thing, which is like, this is a great tool to raise money, to get support, right? 
Uh, and so people that, that agree with them are going to be very much on the fact that doing whether or not that suit has anything to do with making any kind of actual change, has any legal basis to even proceed. It doesn't matter. Like the signal, the signaling that's going on here is should be taken seriously. I agree yeah. with you. And Charlie, to your point, I mean, the you know, we haven't seen it like this before, except when we did. Right? Like right. except when we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And except so when we did. we're not learning the lessons of just yeah. a few years ago. And you know what happens when they, you know, they, what they say when you don't know your history. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's, that's it's, what happens it's the tea leaves but let's uh, yep. yeah let, let's, let's get into the second topic though yeah so uh, our next courage or cringe Shakari Richardson um, who is super 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 fast who is very fast not chosen for US relay relay team we will basically will miss the Tokyo Olympics right so this has obviously been a story that's been really heating up over the last you know week week and a half uh, as reported by New York Times and a bunch of other people right so Shakari Richardson who is an American sprinter had basically won the 100-meter qualifier, and but then later tested positive for marijuana and was immediately suspended for 30 days, and her victory was invalidated, right? Now, this is something that, in this case, she immediately admitted and apologized for. It didn't actually offer an excuse, but she did say that that she, in part, she did this in order to cope with the recent death of her biological mom, which she actually found out, like, literally by someone report, like, interviewing her. So I'm, I'm sure they were, it sounded like they were strange, right? But she found out from someone reporting, you know, a, a reporter who basically told her this, right? Now, to make the U.S. team in a track and field event, an athlete must actually finish in the top three in the trials and have met the Olympic standard, right? So she would have been made part of the team, but with the suspension, she basically misses. Um, so with that suspension, she immediately basically took her, took her out of being eligible to compete in the 100-meter race. But there was still an actual chance that she could join the Olympic team and be part of the 4 by 100 team that would take place, that race will take place after the 30 days of, of her suspension, right? Now, part of that is because for track officials, they actually are able to pick at least two athletes for the relay team, regardless of their performance at the trials, right? Well, that chance, and as we mentioned, the headline is now gone, right? As the team announced. But just, but, but I'm not tracking that. Just really quick. So, so, but the, the point is that you can get there to. You have to qualify, and then you have to be within. You have to be compliant. And in this case, it was like, well, you you qualified, but you weren't compliant. But there was a chance that she could go there. Uh, as a uh, in a different event, right? Well, what happens is that the 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 track and field team, the U.S. track and field team, yeah, right, yeah, in their picks to take people to the Olympics, they basically look at the top three qualifiers of the races, right, and those automatically get in. Got it. Now, part of their they have the choice yeah. to take two more people. Right out of the full group that they can that they can bring even on, even if they didn't qualify, even if they didn't but qualify. they still have to be compliant. So they can still know. bring him on got board, it, right? It, so it, the idea here yeah. was like, hey, there is a chance that she could actually still get on the 4 by 100 okay. because it was going to happen yeah. after the 30 days. And even though she was disqualified of the race, she still had the ability to be able to get brought in, right? right? Now, um, the, the, the USA track and field team did express its sympathy and call for the inner re- uh, revaluation of the, the, the anti-doping rules on marijuana use. And they said all USATF, which is USA Track and Field athletes, are equally aware and must adhere to the current anti-doping code. And our credibility as a national governing body will be lost if rules were not were only enforced under certain circumstances. So while our heartfelt understanding li- lies with Sh- Shakari, we must also maintain fairness for all of the athletes who attempted to realize their dreams by securing a place of the U.S. Olympic Track and Field team. Now, one of the things that I will note here is that when that came out, that she tested positive, even before it went public, the USA track and field team had already selected basically six people. 
they took her off the list and selected six people. And it was so later that that this sort of this new thing kind of came up and said, hey, maybe you could actually bring her on board, which would have meant having to take someone else off that list uh, in order to bring her on board, right? So courage or cringe, rules are rules, especially when competing at the highest level, or missed opportunity to give a second chance to the best athlete that was excluded by outdated policies. William. I'm up, right? I'm courage on this one. Um, you know, I think that... Um, your courage in the deciding, in deciding to not include her in the team, you're saying? I am. Yeah. Okay, I cool. Am. All right. Um, <clears throat> yes, rules are rules. I understand that, that that can be a little bit too rigid to, to use that as the explanation. But generally speaking... When it comes to competition, especially sports competitions like these, I tend towards that because I think that there's so many different ways that people look for edges that if you're not rigid, then then these gray areas pop up and they start to they start to to screw around with the integrity of the sport and its results. And you can't trust what you see. So I think you have to be very careful about how far down that path you go in terms of making exceptions or creating gray lines and all those different things, because it can it can very quickly turn to something that's very difficult to manage. This situation could have been even worse, I think, if they had made the exception, because you're making the exception. Everyone says, well, hey, it's a harmless drug. It doesn't it's not performance enhancing or whatever the case may be. At the end of the day, it's on the list of stuff you can't do. And like I said, every athlete knows they're not supposed to do it. So you are aware of the risks that come with actually doing something that's in violation of whatever the rules might be. And I think someone, Charlie, may have been you, mentioned, um, you know, I think you said where they, they qualify or were they compliant. And they qualified, but they weren't compliant. And in this case, they're not compliant. And, um, you know, I've got, you know, I've got two kids, which they may make their presence felt on this call. I don't know. Um, both of them are athletes and they compete. And my oldest one is a high school um, athlete. And I don't want to see anyone doing anything that is an opportunity to get an edge that they shouldn't have because he's doing everything he's supposed to do to be able to compete in the, in, in the purity of the sport as much as he possibly can. And I like to know that everyone else is doing the same thing. Um, the last thing I'll say about it is, yes, it may be an outdated perspective about the use of marijuana, et cetera. That could be 100% true. But at the end of the day, it's not the law. It's not allowed. And so, and they can't change it. Like they could say, oh, they could say, yeah, you can use these particular drugs if you want. But if they're going to change it, they're not going to change it today just so she can run in 30 days. What this hopefully does it forces them to reevaluate from this point forward. Let's really think about whether or not this is the policy we want to maintain and the stance we want to continue to, to, to take. That might change that. And that might be the result of what's happened here. Unfortunate for her and certainly given the circumstances of a death in the family. All those things recognize and acknowledge. But this may be the thing that starts the change that everyone is wanting to see anyway. I just don't think you can do this on the fly. I think it's the wrong approach. So, is it me? Hmm, okay. Nice. Nicely summarized. Garnett, what do you think? Uh, Mr. X-Track athlete. I'm going to say, be a runner. I'm, I'm, I'm a, life, you, you did a track. lifelong runner, and, you know, I ran all the way up until college. And Nice. I just got my Penn Relay socks in the mail today. Very happy about that. Um, Very nice. nice. Uh, okay, so yeah, as a, as a as an ex runner, what do you, what do you think? Look, as a lifelong runner, actually, what do you look, think? This is uh, 
I, th I think I think William hit it, hit it on the head. Um, I'm I'm beyond disappointed, on, you know, on 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 her behalf, on behalf of the country, and 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 you know, w wanting to win as much as possible, for, wanting the country to win as much as possible in Olympic settings. Um, but if the if the rule hadn't if the rule was not changed at the time of the actual race, then you got to go with the rule. Um, that's that is what it is. I, I'm I'm irritated because you know I, I feel like the delta between social policies and the evolution of social policies around you know around marijuana use and this uh, USA ATF and and there's a couple of other uh, uh, governing bodies that relate to this. You know the delta between those two perspectives being so wide that should have never happened. Some so, somebody should have either trued up. The, the rules, or try to figure out some kind of ombudsman type catch-all rule where you could make an exception for something like this, um, you know, and, and, you know, track and field is, it's not just USA, right? I mean, it's part of like global governing bodies and you can't, you can't make a unilateral decision just about the US, especially not if you're competing on the global stage. So, you know, all of that said, I, I, I have to come down on the side of courage uh, but I'm cringing all the way through it. In, in terms of getting, <laughs> We're doing it reluctantly. Yeah, and I know. If she was, uh, <laughs> but 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 in terms of getting on the same page as it relates to marijuana use, I mean, the reality is this country can't get itself on the same page as it relates to marijuana use. I mean, let's be honest about that, right? Like we we actually are allowing legally, sort of, in now in a whole number of states, but not really federally, right? It's like, but we're not really going to pay attention. We're going to, you know, just kind of. Look the other way a little bit and let it kind of continue to happen, continue to evolve. And so what hope do we really have of having having a more progressive view as it relates to marijuana at a global stage if as a country we can't even get it together here? Yep. That was a good point. That's a good, and people, people are pointing out the fact that Biden is a little bit slower than uh, folks had hoped. You know, um, he might yeah. be in terms of um, going to a higher level in the taxonomy, going to the federal level and making something happen and then pushing the change downwards, right? He's definitely yeah, been, yeah. been slower than I think people expected. I, I have a, I, I just to, you know, want to give a little bit of, of context here on my thoughts on this. And I can't think of any kind of pot issue without contextualizing around the fact that I ride motorcycles. And I can tell you, I've been riding motorcycles since I was six years old, many of them on street and a lot for 20 plus years here in California. And when we legalized marijuana, like every time I go out now, just every single time I ride, every time, without exception, every time, I'll ride next to somebody who's smoking weed because I can smell it. And you don't notice that when you're driving Whoa. a car because you don't smell these things, right? Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that that has exploded given the recreational um, easing Wait, of so who's smoking laws. the weed? Is it another motorcycle driver or a car yeah. driver? Or? Another no, car. No, 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 the cars. 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 The cars. In the cars. In the cars. Like, I mean, and if you don't, if you don't believe me, like I always tell people, it's like, because I'm always encouraging people to ride bikes because I think it's like there's no greater thing in the world. So get on a bike, come out, and just smell the air. And so the idea of being having people that are like high, and it turns out, this is, I didn't think I was going to talk about this, but my son actually was riding last week and he laid the bike down. A guy literally in a Prius cut him off and he, he had his girlfriend on the back and he, and he dropped his bike. Thank God they weren't, they weren't hurt, but they smelled pot too. 
right? And so I, I think about all of these things in this context, right? So it's hard for me to divorce that that thinking from all this stuff. I'm fine with hemp, fine with, uh, you know, CBD, fine with the medicinal uses of marijuana, but speaking specifically about its recreational context, like, I just can't get on board. So that's one of my starting points, just so you guys are, are aware. Now, having said all that, 100% on board with William. I think that, like, the reality of it is, is we're talking about Olympic athletes. We're talking about where... A fraction of one second actually makes the difference between gold and silver. We're not talking about, and no offense to your to your, to your kids, obviously, that are track athletes or high school athletes, so are mine, but we're not talking about high school athletics. We're talking about sports at the highest level where advantages can actually make a significant difference. And the fact of it is, as you already said, that these are actually named substances in the USADA protocol for Olympic athletes. So there's, it's like it's literally named. Like this is something that doesn't qualify. Now, in terms of the performance, I had no idea. So I did a little bit of research and apparently there is some, you know, there is some data and scholarship on what it does and what it doesn't do. And there's pretty good data on its uh, ability to reduce inflammation, to treat muscle spasms, to do a variety of different things, which you could see at least from a recovery standpoint, giving you an edge over your competitor. So for all those reasons, this one's easy for me. It's courage on the decision. Having said all that, I think we all need to take a page out of uh, Shikari Richardson's book because she, first of all, talked about it, said it was my fault, shouldn't have done it, and like pretty much hasn't said much since then. And it's like, man, that kind of like, that showed like a real sense of integrity, in my opinion, where a lot of these things can spin into these kind of tabloidy sort yeah, of yeah, sort of yeah. deals. So anyway, I'm courage. No, I think with her, uh, she was. I think she handled it the best way you could possibly handle it. Immediately own up. Immediately apologize and say, "Hey, I knew I was breaking the rules and I broke it anyways." I do think it's a very cringe decision by by the track team to not find a way to have her on it because she is by far the best athlete. Oh, she's wicked fast. And I think yeah. I think if you it's all are that pot if you are number six on that list, Jesus, number two you missed my joke. Yeah, exactly, it's all right? that pot she's smoking. If you're if you're number six, number five, number four on the list, you know you shouldn't be on that team. You know you were not good enough. Like that's the reality. You got in on a technicality. So even for them, I think there has to be for like being left off is is even if they got left off after the fact, knowing that number six compared to number well, who she, well, she would be number one by far, I think there will be an understanding. Say, hey, I know I shouldn't have made this team anyways because I just did not make make the cut. And I, I think about it more in the context of a couple of things. One is I do think these are outdated rules because as as and I can definitely appreciate your your point of view, Charlie. And we've talked about this before, but. You know, people made, made the same kind of example. She could have gone completely shit-faced and drunk, like, out of her mind, and nothing comes from that, right? And when you think about the, the issues that we have across the globe, across the country, around alcoholism, abuse, like, you know, uh, people that are drunk driving, killing people, there is so much more you could point to alcohol. But, yeah, we're all pretty okay with that. That's okay if she just goes and just get completely shit-faced because she's going through a really difficult time. So putting that aside, I think it will be in a moment that we're coming off – you know, 2020 with COVID, with all these different issues and so many people struggling with mental wellness and someone that's going through a really hard time and getting the opportunity to the best, best, best athlete to be able to have another shot to get on here on something that she really was like, she didn't even ask him for it, but I'm not saying because she's asked. I'm simply saying, I think it, it could have gone a long way of saying like, hey, there was a really human moment that this young person who's 21 years old made a mistake and owned up to it immediately, but she's still the best athlete that we had in here. I think it could have gone a really long way of saying that even when we make our mistakes at the highest stage, that as an organization, we realize that there could be circumstances that go beyond just sports that we can consider and actually bring her back onto the team. Okay. 
Gentlemen, any other thoughts on that? No, I'm still, I'm still pissed. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm, you got to go for a run, then. Okay, go for exactly, a run. Yeah. exactly right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave cool. it. All right. <laughs> well, less, uh, less athletics, and uh, but still more controversy on this final courage or cringe. Final courage or cringe. So high-profile UNC professor refuses tenure based on race-motivated reasons. So Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones announced Tuesday that she had declined a 10-year professorship at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is actually her alma mater, right? Now, instead, she'll be taking the position as inaugural night chair in race and reporting at Howard University. It's just such a cooler-sounding name. You know what I mean? Like, cooler-sounding title, cooler-sounding school name. It, it I don't is. know. Well, like it, it was actually, it's actually the same, the same position, I, night chair. I approve both. of the marketing implications. Yeah, of it is. Right? I like the night chair. i never heard of that. Uh, the issue is that UNC had initially offered Hannah Jones a position as the night chair in race and investigative journalism in July with a five-year contract. Now, she would have been the first black person to hold this, this position and the only person to be appointed without tenure. Of the ones who had previously been in there. So every uh, single yeah. person that, that has had it before was, was white, and every single person that had been offered that position was also offered tenured in that same, at, the, at the same time, right? Got um, it. That's the issue, right? Then it's at curious. the very last minute, after a lot of pressure, including weeks of protest, threat of legal action, becoming a national sc- uh, scandal, the UNC, the UNC trustees finally approved her tenure at a special meeting just last Thursday, right? So they just basically, <laughs> getting a lot of pressure, decided, no, 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 yeah, we're all going to offer you tenure. Yeah, please don't sue us. <laughs> yeah, right. please don't sue us. Exactly. <laughs> that become a big thing. Now, in her mind, she said that she believes that she did not initially get tenure due to concerns from university members about her work in the 1619 Project, which was the project that was, that was published in the New York Times um, that reexamines the legacy of slavery in America, yeah. right? So she said, and I quote, so it's pretty clear that my tenure was not taken up because of political opposition, because of discriminatory views against viewpoints, and, uh, against viewpoints, and I believe my race and my gender. She went on to say, this is not my fight. I fought the bottle, I, and I, uh, I fought the bottle I wanted to fight, which is I deserve to be treated equally and have a vote on my tenure. I won that battle, but it's not my job to heal the University of North Carolina. That's the job of people in power who create the situation in the first place. So she's obviously pointing to the trustees. Now, faculty at the of UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media put a statement online in which they wrote. And by the way, one thing I didn't mention is the faculty themselves also voted for her to go tenure. It was the trustees that did not initially approve it, right, until the very, very last, <clears throat> last minute. So... The, the journalism school put out a statement. They said, while disappointed, we're not surprised. We support Ms. Hannah Jones' choice. The appalling treatment of one of our nation's most decorated journalists by her own alma mater was humiliating, inappropriate, and unjust. We will be frank. It was racist. All right. So courage or cringe, rightfully walking away from tenure offered in a potential toxic dynamic or missed opportunity to change the system from the inside. So I, I, I have to be careful with this one, right? Because I, I got strong opinions that, that what she did was the, was the absolute right thing. And, and, and I have a quote I want to share with you. But I, I want to make sure that you're asking Please. me to opine on leaving or, or, or yes. opine on, it, on the yeah. symbolism of what her leaving means for crappy UNC. Is it, is it courageous for her to turn down the now tenured offer? Right. For Howard, yep. Was that, it courageous or it. was it cringeworthy for Got her to it. do no, that? No, that's 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 courage. Um, to to me, that's courage. And I want to I want to start off by reading this quote from her official statement. I spent my entire life proving that I belonged in elite white spaces that were not built for black people. 
I got a lot of clarity through what happened with the University of North Carolina. I decided I, d I didn't want to do that anymore. I'm like, I, I read this quote when it came out in her official release, and, and I was like, mm -hmm. you saw that quote too, I, yeah. had, I had a little bit of PTSD. I'm not going to lie to you. I feel like yeah. I feel like I, I have had this feeling, you know, at at and I'm gonna name names. I don't give a shit. I, I'm I, you know at Columbia, I like it at NYU, at the London School of Economics, at at the first company that I was the CEO of. I, I felt I felt like I've had this feeling in a mm -hmm. whole lot of quote what she calls white spaces, right? And I, I, I'm beside myself with disappointment in myself that it took me this long into my career to actually, you know, start to um, align my work <laughs> with my own, with my own inner, inner feelings. Right. And so, okay. So there, that, that's my, that, that's my, my preamble to it. Right. Um, right. And so I, I, I don't know if that's a good enough justification for, you know, um, thinking that this is courageous, but I kind of feel vicariously courageous by watching her do this. And I, f I feel emboldened, you know, to, to do more things and hopefully better things o over time. Um, and I, I, I can't, Hey, Gar yeah. Garnett, Go ahead. just on the point that you made earlier, though, uh, what do you make of, like, this idea of Columbia and NYU not being just—let's just, you know, say it clearly, these are not bastions of uh, rock-rib conservative— thought that's right right these are very progressive very blue environments that's where right. nevertheless you have experienced this, this 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 idea of these of these spaces i definitely don't hear enough about this jesus and i are, i'm always talking about it with jesus because you know it's been my experience too but i feel like we don't talk about it we think about these spaces as being some podunk town in alabama or something but like that's not been my experience. My experience has been like yours. It's been in Colombia and NYU and other places where that's like the easy narrative, right? To just point to some of these places that would be like the well, obvious, like it may be easy, right. but it's also just to my my experience. It's not true to what I've lived through. So I, I you know, I guess I just would ask you, like, do, do the double click on that. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna just drill down a little bit. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's and I appreciate the chance to to go deeper. So just to be clear. I, I love my alma mater, Columbia, and I think I, th you know, I think they stand alone uh, among the Ivy Leagues as having been always needs blind admissions. So for for Columbia to to have a diverse population was something that's been happening for twenty or thirty years. That's not that's not a function of like ten years of hard work at, at Harvard or, or or ten years at Stanford. That's Columbia has been doing this since the sixties and the seventies, and so you know that's 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 something that needs to be said on behalf. I'm talking. I'm talking more about the feelings that you have as, let's say, an, in my case, an undergraduate student with the with the general general population of students, um, and then the you know the sort of affiliated nexus of you know student organizations and student student participatory things and you know intramural things. That that's more what I'm talking about. And 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 then the 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 notion of like you know how, how you fit in with those folks who came from private schools and other things like that. You know, in that social setting, not just the academic setting. Look, I'm I'm not trying to be a jerk or anything, but I, you know, I'm academically I, I I stand apart from the vast majority of my peers, white or black or brown or yellow at, at Columbia. So I don't care, right? I, I'm talking about socially, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but even that distinction is actually really helpful because I think a lot of times we just think of this all wrapped up into one. So looking at this thing in those different kind of facets yeah. is certainly helpful for me. Super helpful. And, and I, I, you know, it's complicated, right? Because I, I have a lot of respect for Columbia always having been needs blind. That's a, that's a big thing because poor, poor folks like me, you know, and, and, and given my, my background and stuff, you know, the uh, son of a single mom immigrant, you know, from the Caribbean, that, there's no way. <laughs> on God's green earth, I, I was going to Columbia without that specific policy being in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be a tough climb. Yeah, generally speaking. Uh, yeah, well, well, cool. E- All right. Either that, well, or then... I have to have like some kind of uh, some kind of job <laughs> that pays a lot of money in right, a short exactly. period of time. Right. Exactly. Um, cool. Okay. So that's one one on the courage side. William, what about you? So I have to issue a disclaimer before I say anything else. Uh-oh. One, I'm born and raised in North Carolina. <laughs> Two, graduate of North Carolina State and Duke University. So, oh, you got a local. <laughs> well, you just know you just you know you, you just know go. the devil better than everybody else. That's all. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> the blue devil. <laughs> oh, That's right. So, so with all of that said, um, I'm 100 percent courage on this. Um, I think that um, this this is probably one of the best lessons of where we are um, as a nation um, when it comes to this particular topic in these types of situations. Um, you have one of the more progressive states in the South, which is saying a lot because that's effectively oxymoron. Um, you have a woman who is a graduate of the institution and a black woman who's a graduate of the institution. And you have the most obvious, obvious attempt to deny her of an opportunity that relative to everyone else, she certainly deserved every opportunity. And at a minimum, what she deserved was a fair hearing and a fair opportunity. Now, if you do everything that you're supposed to do, you evaluate her, and yeah, there's some questions about the work that she did with 1619, and there's some questions you can be, that can be asked and issues that can be legitimately raised. You take all of that, and then you make a decision that says, hey, we've considered all of the facts, and we don't think it's right for you to be here at this university. Okay, fine. If you make that decision, you say, no, this is actually where we want you to be. Okay, fine. That's perfect, and we're done. But she didn't get that. What she got was the response that so many other people get. But fortunately, in this case, we all got a chance to see it because it opened up in front of everyone to to be able to see what was happening behind closed doors. And unfortunately, this is common. We know it is. And I know it is because in this case, it is my state. These are the people that I've, I've had these interactions with people that sit in these power, in, in these places of power, these various institutions, and I know what happens behind closed doors. We know that the answers that we would expect to see aren't the ones that we actually see when it's all said and done, and therefore something else was at play. And that's what's being exposed here. When you have the faculty stand up and say, you're racist. Like, we work here, and you're racist. Like, that's not, you know, every time people talk about, you know, universities issuing, you know, the faculty may issue a... Um, a vote of no confidence and things like that in their leadership. And everyone takes those as being really meaningful statements. I would argue that if you've got the whole department saying that you're racist, 
that is on a whole different level and of, of seriousness about what's happening at your institution. And so, and I, and I gave that disclaimer because I'm not here, to, I'm not going to Tar Heel bash because what's happening at UNC is not unique to UNC. Because in addition to what happened to her there, in my view, the immediate response from surrounding universities in North Carolina, including the ones that I attended, should have been uh, that decision by Carolina, shallow, short-sighted, and racist. We're not any of those things. You have tenure here. Let's make it happen right now. Let's go. And you didn't hear anything from anybody else. No one criticized the university. No one criticized their leadership. No one said a word. And so in the, in the halls of academia, in the power suites of academia, they keep silent. When they see things that are wrong, they keep silent. Howard University doesn't keep silent because that's not in Howard University's nature. And so they didn't just get her. They got some other folks to basically come home, come to a place where they're going to be appreciated. And so one of my, in fact, the guy that's responsible for Garnett and, and, and I even becoming a team um, is a Howard graduate, a Howard University graduate. He's one of my best friends. We went to business school together, a guy by the name of Philip McKenzie. And I'm going to butcher the quote, but I saw something he posted the other day, which was he said, in effect, this is, should be a message to a lot of other people out there. Go to the places where you are wanted, not where the place, not to the places where you can at best be tolerated. And that's what was going to happen to her. So people say, oh, you know, you should have, she should have gone and changed the system from the inside. For what? Why do we always have to be the one that has to take that responsibility for your shortcomings? You fix your own house. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to be everything I can possibly be and to deliver everything that I've got on the platform that I can get, my, get access to and be me, be everything about me that I can be. And if I can do that within your system, then I'll do that within your system. But what she told them was that I'm not going to do that there. You don't want me there and I don't have to be there. I'll go someplace where I want it and I will deliver the messaging, the messages and everything else that I've got. And I'm going to deliver it to the people that actually want to hear from me or at least at a minimum, I want to be supportive of my opportunity and my freedom to share with the world what I know. That's it. And if UNC or any other university can't even deliver that to professors or to their students, therefore they can't deliver it to their students, then eventually, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not even for the next five or 10 years, but eventually what's going to happen is people are going to start to recognize that I will take my talents elsewhere too. I don't have to go there in order to become whoever it is I'm going to become and to do whatever it is I'm going to do. I don't have to go there. And that theme, I think, plays out in a lot of other spaces. It even plays out in our business. And it's a part of what we're doing with our fund, which is you, don't ha you can build this anywhere. And you can build this with whoever you want to build it with, but build it with the people that actually want to see you build it. And they want to help you build it. UNC said, we don't want to help you do this. We don't want to deal with you and whatever else you bring to the party. We're not interested. We're not interested in critical race theory. We don't want to talk about it. We, want, we don't want to hear anything about 1619. We don't want to talk about slavery. It's uncomfortable and it's North Carolina. Stop it. That's what they said. 
And for anyone that comes at her and says, well, you should have recognized all that stuff and still gone into the belly of the beast. She doesn't have to do that anymore. We used to have to do that in order to change systems. We used to have to go into the lunch counter and sit down, even though you told us not to, and all these other things we had to do. But we've now gotten to the place where we can change systems from within and from without. And we have the freedom to do it whichever way we think is the best for us. And so I applaud her for it. Um, I think it's a wonderful decision. I think it's a great win for Howard. Um, and again, and, and, and this is a message not just to the predominantly white institutions that I think really missed the opportunity to step in. It's a message to every other, um, every other university out there, including the HBCUs. This should have been a no-brainer for any of them to get her on their campus. And they should have jumped at the opportunity. And hopefully they won't miss it the next time. Well, I, I think we found the audiogram for this episode that yeah, we can uh, promote. Well, I, I think well you, said, you're William. bringing up a, yeah, a lot of points, William. I think one of the things that I, I really love what you're saying, and I, and I think about in this case, is what's going to be the residual impact of this decision? Because if you want to make someone feel unwanted, they sure nailed it across the board, right? That's generally like they, they really yeah, nailed it. they got it. a perfect and 10 on that one. Her, yeah, and then her leaving and going to a Howard... What, and then, the, to your point, having the School of Journalism make that kind of really strong statement, right? It's a, obviously, it's a signal to the school, it's a signal to any other uh, academics that are there who are thinking about, well, do I really need to then stay here and, and try to change from within, go somewhere else? It's a message to any student that is going there, that has thought about going there. Because to me, the more interesting thing about this conversation is like, when I think of UNC, and I know nothing of UNC except for watching them play basketball. I'm like, that's a pretty diverse school. Because I think about the basketball teams. Like, right? I think of Michael Jordan. Like, that's the first thing that I think comes to my mind when I think of UNC. I'm like, it's almost synonymous to me. Right? And I think of all, like, watching whatever, you know, college basketball. But even those teams are not necessarily reflective of cultures that are within these universities. And when you see, the, you know, how this, this all played out, it's just hard to imagine that the the fallout of of these decisions collectively are going to end with just her going to Howard. I think it's going to have probably a bigger impact to the school administration, students across the board. And I think maybe maybe the, the point the point that you're making with them is that maybe that's where the real change comes from. It's not so much about trying to change from within, but letting outside pressure force those that are in those in those power places to have to rethink the way that they approach it. Otherwise, they'll continue to have people going to other options because there are a lot of, a lot of other options. There are. There are other options. And the, and the thing that, that people don't recognize, just one, of, one other point to make here, is that the pressure, what happened at UNC came from the outside. There were people that called them and said, don't do that. You know, I write a big check. Don't do that. Like, that's what happens mm. in universities. Like, that's the only reason why they, they make got pressured, decisions. Yeah. They got pressure. And so you're talking about a state that is still struggling with its own identity from a political standpoint as, you know, you continue to see more and more people move into the state that are coming from the Northeast and other parts of the country that are more liberal. And they are encountering more and more people who have been there for their entire lives and are far more conservative. And so that conflict plays out on every one of these university campuses. UNC is, despite whatever it may want you to believe, it is still a public institution. And so it has a fair number of people that attend that university that are from North Carolina, and they bring everything with them to that environment. The same is true for the people who went there years ago, more conservative than the people who go there now. 
And so, but they're the ones that provide the capital to the university that makes it run. They've got an endowment. And each one of these universities, and, 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 and I'll say this, if any of these universities would have said, hey, in the wake of that decision, we're going to step in and we're going to offer her tenure immediately, they would have immediately gotten backlash too. No question. And it just would have come down to which university president is willing to take that heat and say, I don't care what you say. I don't care if you say you're going to pull the dollars. This is our university. This is who we are. This is what we're about. And we want her here. And because no one stepped forward to do that, she's now at Howard. Or I should say not because no one did that. Because Howard said, we want you here. She's there. And so yeah, that they took same the opportunity to go get her. individuals. Yeah. Yeah, just for for the record, the demographic info, which I'm looking at for UNC right now, about about 34 percent of the student population is not white, um, which is a slight a slight under index relative to the general population. It gets more pronounced as you look at the individual groups, huge over index of Asian uh, American students. It's 18 percent when the average is uh, when the national population is about five uh, under index in Latino, under index in black. And that's where sort of the mix comes in, but, um, probably, uh, not as diverse. Jesus, to your point earlier, as perhaps other institutions are. Look, I'm encouraged too, maybe for different reasons, or at least ones I haven't heard at least explicitly as much as, as much as, uh, these. Uh, and one is that I, I wouldn't want to work there with people that don't seem to have a lot of integrity because they sort of made a decision. They got bullied. They got beat, you know, they got picked on. There was a lot of press and they came back and said, oh, no, 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 we changed our mind. It's like, well, you know what? I don't want to do that either. I don't want to work for people who are like, it makes it worse. Right? Stick to your guns, man. Stick to your guns. Yeah, it makes it worse. The other, the other, the other reason is, and we haven't really talked much about this, but the, as near as I could find, and again, I'd really try to dig into these things and find out well, why the hell do these people say no to begin with, right? If everybody got tenure, are they that stupid? And I just refuse to admit that people in these positions are just dumb. Like, and, and what, what came back was a couple things. One is that there was some concern that she was coming from a professional into an academic background. But then I looked at the previous people and it seemed like a lot of them had come from professional into academic backgrounds. So that one didn't seem to wash. And then the other one that I looked at uh, was this 1619 project, which, William, to your point, has legit historian opposition to a lot of its points, right 100%. or wrong, whether that makes yep. people whether that makes people uncomfortable or not. It doesn't matter. You got Stanford people, Princeton, Harvard, historians going, hey, you know what? A lot of this stuff is actually ahistorical. And so yep. there's a real conversation to be had about that. And I think people maybe felt that and they didn't want to give her tenure because of that, weren't brave enough to say that's why. And then they got caught into this whole PR swirl. And that's the part of the sort of racism that I'm talking about that happens, again, to bring up the point, a lot of these places, academia is, again, not a place that's like just conservatively wound up, but in in these places where people don't tell you what they're really thinking. It's like somebody saying, well, in their head, they're going, I don't like some of this stuff. It's kind of controversial. You were wrong about it, blah, blah, blah. But I'm not going to tell you that because touching that subject is nuclear. And I don't want to be the person who said that this is wrong because it's in the New York Times or whatever it is. What I'll do is I'll tell you, hey, no, we'll give you a five-year contract without tenure. Right. And just hope you don't I'll complain. A, a shittier version of the, exactly. of the job. Hope you don't complain. Oh, and when you come back and do complain, then I'll get bullied. Then I'll give it to you. And it's like, man, just start with the truth. The only yeah. point that I would quibble with William on is that I actually, and this is a lot of it just driven by my Christian faith, like I actually believe there's a lot of power of being like in, the leaven in the dough. Like I believe about being inside the things that need to be fixed and transformed. And so I understand the the, the like, hey, man, I'm, I'm done doing this. I get that. I understand. I'm not saying she shouldn't. But I also think that if we're in those places and in those spaces, we can do a lot from the inside out. So I don't want to completely discount that. But anyway, that's me. I'm courage. Yeah, yeah, I'm encouraged on it as well. Go ahead, William. Yeah, no, I was just going to respond to. I think you're 100 percent right. Um, But I, but in this particular scenario, 
I suspect that the change that comes from the possibility of the change coming from within is probably going to come from the people who are still there. They've just called the whole administration racist. Yeah. And I think when you think about the power dynamic is like who makes up the trustees and how they operate. I think that's where it sounds like some change really needs to happen there. Um, because there's obviously a big disconnect between the administration, even in this case, the School of Journalism, and the trustees at the school, right? So, look, I think everything's been said about this one. I'm, I'm encouraged as well for all the reasons we, we've all kind of all talked about. It's just when you look at this, this is, you know, one of those classic examples how to really screw it up. And by trying to fix it the last minute, it actually making it significantly worse, right? So, it... it what I am really curious to see is is what is the once again downstream implications of these kind of decisions, um, as it relates to the whole school and as it relates to people seeing it as a as a good option for education as either a place of work or a place to uh, to be educated. Well said. All right. Well, so we all end up. I don't know. I wasn't keeping track where we net out all all across the board. I think it was a pretty. It was a decent mix. Maybe not our. We yeah. Our we, there wasn't. Uh, we I think this is last one is the, the only one that we fully agreed on. Yeah. All right. Well, good. And even that, right. some, uh, some nuance. <laughs> but for a lot of different reasons, right? I mean, yeah, yeah that's, for that's sure. Kind of well, that's, that's that's the that's the game. But uh, listen, I really, obviously, I'm uh, on behalf of uh, Jesus. Want to thank the both of you for taking the time to be on the show to have uh, the discussion. Um, you know, congratulations on what you're doing with Aperture for you know the folks listening. And I know you touched on it, but you know the way we look at Aperture is a kind of first of its kind uh, investing platform that's backing diverse founders. It's building that next generation of game changers and game changing companies. And for that, that, um, you know, that seems like a real good thing around the, across the board. How can folks follow your work, follow what you're up to? So the website goes live. Right, I'll let you run the ad. Yeah, the website, <laughs> the website goes live in about a week. So, um, you know, by the time this airs, I don't know what your lag time is, but by the time this airs, the website will be live. That's the easiest way. Um, uh, uh, or what's the web address? Uh, Aperture, A-P-E-R-T-U-R-E vc.com there we go that's the plug apertureVC.com. all right we'll see we'll i, I didn't even realize that, that was that was a layup sorry thank you <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna say that was a little bit <laughs> we, got, we gotta practice that one. <laughs> well teed that one teed that one up and it came right back to me okay very good but uh no on a serious level gentlemen uh yes, super great, great conversation thank great you for having us events. jesus any uh, words of wisdom no, parting I, thoughts frankly great great conversations you guys um you know obviously we spent some time even before you encourage a cringe but i love the perspective i love what you guys are doing uh and i definitely wish you a lot of success in, in in that work i think we need more folks like yourself that are looking at this market and once again thinking about diverse opportunities not in the context of charities but in the context of what they actually are which is opportunity very well all right my friends so uh we will see you again next time in the meantime remember to subscribe hit up patreon.com backslash the diversity remix support our work it takes time energy resources patience etc to uh to run this thing so remember to subscribe and let us know how we're doing and also don't forget to check out apertureVC.com. we'll see you again next time on another episode of tdr if you enjoyed this episode of the diversity remix please remember first of all to subscribe and help us to spread the word tell your friends family co-workers and give us a five-star review we're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez. 
with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.